All right, good evening, dear friends. And this is such an exciting moment for me. It's a real Shehechianu, right? Baruch Shehechianu v'kiyemanu v'higiyanu l'azman We are about to endeavor on a uh, wonderful journey studying the Book of Tanya. And uh, many of you, most of you have joined uh, me for some of our courses in the past. And this is gonna be a little bit different. It's gonna be a little bit different because we are not following a curriculum. We are simply studying a book, a classic book, not that ancient, <laughs> relatively definitely not that ancient, just barely 200 years old, a little bit over 200, and, uh, like 200, 225 years old. Um, and we're just gonna be studying it. And there's no end date to this series. We're just gonna be learning week to week, more or less, um, the book of Tanya. So this is going to be the agenda for today's class. Today, I want to introduce you, you all into the world of Tanya. You know, we could just start opening up, open up the page one and just start studying. But I want you to understand what we're going to be learning. Um, and I want you to understand the history, the context, the power of the book. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the book before we do reading. In today's class, I don't think we're going to be doing that. We, we're not going to be doing that much reading. Uh, you'll, you can even see from the handout that I sent out to all of you, which I hope all of you have, if not printed, at least um, if you have like a tablet or on your phone, we're not going to be doing that much reading today. But mainly we're going to be talking about the Tanya. I want you to understand the Tanya. So what is the Tanya? What is this book? So what I could tell you is that I have been, uh, this has been one of my dreams of mine to create a class where we can learn Tanya together and that I should be able to explore the Tanya together with all of you wonderful people, dear friends. This is the book of Tanya, all right? This is, this is what it looks like. This is a Hebrew edition of it. And it's not such a small book. So uh, it could seem like a pretty daunting task to make our way through this book. And this is, I can just show you, this is what a uh, random open page of Tanya looks. Just pretty packed, dense Hebrew words. Um, but really, the part of Tanya, this book really has four different sections. It's like four separate books printed in one volume. But the part of Tanya that we're going to be studying is, in fact, not that long. It's the first part of Tanya, which um, is just this. All right. I don't know how clearly you can see that. You know, it's 150 pages, uh, which is not that short, but it is, it's not either that long. 53 chapters of what's called the Tanya, um, which is a, a most beloved and classic book of, of Jewish mysticism. Some, some even call it a book of Jewish psychology, but it's a very personal and deep book. But what is the Tanya? What is the Tanya? And I want to share with you that one of the things, before we get into what is Tanya, uh, one of the, one of the uh, elements, which I think is going to make this series different than some of the other classes and courses that we've done, is I want this to be a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more Hamish. Uh, I definitely want to make conversation and dialogue uh, available and open. Absolutely. All of you are welcome. And, uh, you know, we don't have this very rigorous set of, uh, of texts that we need to get through within an hour and a half. We can really take this at our own pace. 
So conversation within what makes sense, right? Within a reason. We do want to move through the text. We want to move through the book. We want to study this together. Uh, but, um, but as much as it makes sense, I definitely do want discussion. I don't want this to just be a frontal lecture, right? A, a one-way dialogue, a one-way lecture. So what is Tanya? Tanya is a book of Hasidic teachings, Hasidic philosophy. But even that, what is Hasidus? What is Hasidicism? Maybe somebody right. knows there's Hasidim, right? There's something called Hasidim, Hasidim. There's teachings called the teachings of Hasidus. Um, what is that? And we need to understand the context of where Tanya falls into the story of Jewish history, the story of uh, the Mosaic teachings, our traditional teachings that come from Moses, um, and what the Tanya is here to do. It's like that, once we actually get in and start digging in, we'll at least understand what we're doing here. So to understand the Tanya and really the Hasidic movement, we need to go back quite a while, about 150 years. Hey, Mendel, you want to say hi? Come say hi. And they got to go to, they got to go to sleep. Everyone's here on Zoom. Want to say hi? Or no? No, just getting ready. You're just getting ready to go to sleep? All right, here's Mendel. <laughs> you can go to sleep, Mendel? Well, you're not going to sleep? All right. <laughs> okay, do you want to bring a chair? You can bring a chair and sit here quietly, okay? So the Tanya was printed in the year 1796. 1796 is when the Tanya is printed. The author of the Tanya is, I put his picture here in your printout. This is what he looks like. This is not a photograph of him. This is not a photograph because there was no, uh, there was no real photography in those days. Um, but this is a, uh, this is a portrait, a, a drawing of him. Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi passed away in the year 1812. He's known as the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe means the elder senior Rebbe because he was the first Rebbe of Chabad, right? The Chabad movement. There's the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, um, who passed away in 1994. And the Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson, was number seven in the succession of the Rebbe's of Chabad. This is number one. This was the Rebbe's great, 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 great grandfather. And he authored the Tanya. And he was a tremendous sage, a holy man, and a leader of hundreds of thousands of Jews in the European heartland, uh, you know, in, in white Russia, all throughout Russia and Ukraine. Really, all the Jews that lived there were his followers. And he authored the Tanya in 1796. Uh, we know from history that he spent 20 years, 20 years, editing and writing and rewriting and just such a rigorous process to create a very precise and beautiful book of the Tanya. So let's talk a little bit about what the author Rebbe was doing. What is the Tanya? What is Hasidus? When did Hasidus start? So I want to bring you into the story and not just because the story is interesting, which it is, but as we'll see, it will, it will help us understand what Tanya is all about and what we want to do over here. So the story begins in the year 1648 and 1649. 1648, 1649. Now, in these years, the 1600s, the 17th century, and for 
quite a few hundred years prior, about 500 years, already from the 1100s, Jews lived, the Jews of Europe lived primarily in the Polish territories, the territory of Poland, um, which is a very interesting history in itself. Originally, the Jews that uh, lived in Europe originally began in Western Europe, in, in, um, in France, in Germany, in England, but the persecution was horrible, horrible. Um, in the uh, in the 10th century, in the 11th century, and Jews started moving east because it was just so bad. They were escaping the pogroms and the and the uh, crusades. Poland and the Polish monarchy, the Polish nobility, became very welcoming and hospitable for the Jewish people. And there was a very big need for a middle class in Poland. You know, you had the nobility, and um, and then you had the the very you know, very the regular Polish um, yeah. society was very. They were called serfs, and they were they were they weren't even a low, lower class. They were a. It was a very big divide, and in short, the Jewish people were welcomed in by the monarchy, by the nobility, to be the middle class, and they were given very good jobs. And for the most part, Jewish life in Poland was very comfortable, and Jews enjoyed their time in Poland. Life started getting very difficult in Poland. And I, I just want to preface this, that Poland of, six, of, the, of the 17th century is not the Poland of today. The Poland of today is a, man, is, is, a, is a new invention. The Polish kingdom, I believe what it was called, was massive. The Polish kingdom included parts of Russia, parts of Ukraine, included Lithuania, Belarus, Germany. Um, so it was massive, and the Jews lived there. In the 17th century, really beginning in the middle of the 17th century, life started going downhill for the Jews. So we're talking about hundreds of, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of Jews. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of Jews who lived in Poland. Amen. Time to go ahead. Very good. Go. What happened? 1648, 1649. In Ukraine, there is a group of Cossacks as they were called, um, as well as just regular peasants. And they were riled up by a man whose name was Bogdan Chalmanitsky. Bogdan Chalmanitsky was a ruthless warrior. And he riled up the Cossacks and whoever he can from the Ukraine population, Ukrainian population, to create a attack on the Polish nobility. So an army, an army of thousands of Cossacks start moving in from Ukraine up into Poland from the south. Uh, what ended up happening was they didn't really end up attacking the nobility. They ended up going after the Jews. And really one of the darkest periods of Jewish history started unfolding at this time, 1648, 1649, two years of horrible, just really horrible pogroms. And not just pogroms, talking about massacres. One day, out of the blue, Chelmanitsky and uh, his henchmen and the Cossacks show up in a Jewish village, round up all the Jews, and offer all the Jews an ultimatum. Either convert to Christianity, or you're going to die right here on the spot. It's a, uh, it's a conversation for another time, but it's unbelievably remarkable 
how Jews, we're talking about 99.9% of every single Jew, willingly and happily gave up their life not to convert out of the faith. And the massacre was horrible. Literally, heads were being chopped by the thousands. Uh, we, have, we have records. Scrolls were written so like that there would be record of what happened. Horrible accounts. Horrible. Bar it was barbaric. They described the rivers of Jewish blood, literally, that were flowing down the streets. It was two years, not a single Jewish village was spared. And it was almost impossible for there to be any survivors. Over two years, Bogdan Kalmanitsky and his men made their way from the south, all, almost all the way up to the north of Poland in the area of Lithuania. And at that point already, the Polish army put a stop to it and arrested him and threw him into exile. And forever from then, those two years are known as, in Hebrew, it's known as Xeros Tachvetat, the evil decree the horrible decree of the year Tachentat, which is uh, to, in our calendar, the equivalent of 1648-1649. And uh, as after every single Holocaust that we've experienced as Jews, there were a lot of open wounds and the Jews were, were, hardly be were, were severely beaten. The trauma was very deep. And of course it was, uh, it was very difficult. You know, just to compare this with the more recent Holocaust that we've had in World War II, what we refer to as the Holocaust, historians say, and this is hard for us to, to uh, it's hard for us to accept this, but historians say that the, 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 the damage, the destruction that was done by the Chalmaniski pogroms was even worse and more damaging to the Jewish community and the Holocaust. And there are numerous reasons why, but we have to realize that this was, it was a very deep traumatic time for the Jewish people, in the years following the Chalmaniski pogroms. You know, just, 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 just to share with you one little uh, insight. And it is interesting when you look back post-Holocaust, how, you know, with all the pain and the suffering that we've gone through, there were certain um, silver linings in the story especially post-Holocaust, which really helped the Jewish people move on. And there, there were certain conditions and certain circumstances that really helped accelerate the healing process. One of the things that helped, helped Jews heal quicker after the Holocaust was that everybody left. Nobody stayed. Nobody stayed, nobody went back to the ghettos. The survivors left, they left their hometowns, they left their countries. They moved to North America, to South America, to Australia, to Israel. People left. You didn't go, nobody went back home. By the Chalmaniski pogroms, the, the, the few meager survivors stayed put. And that meant that you were living in the drama, in the thick of it, for years and decades. You were literally standing on the ground that swallowed Jewish blood, and you didn't move from there. And that made the pain just so fresh. And it, it, and the Jewish community just couldn't get over it. But uh, that wasn't the only bad news. As you could imagine, the Jews are broken, the few survivors, and uh, they're desperate for some hope. 
And a few years later, a few short years after the pogroms are over, news reaches Poland that there is a Messiah. There is a, today we know that he was an imposter. He was a fraud. Uh, but there was a man, his name was Shaptai Tzvi. Shaptai Tzvi hung around in the Mediterranean area, you know, Middle East, some African countries. Um, and he said that he was a Messiah. And people believed him. And the Jews of Europe were so desperate for good news that they bought into Shaptai Tzvi hook, line, and sinker. Today we look back and we know that there were a lot of from Izmir, but Noah, Izmir itself is the city. Izmir, I'm forgetting the country where he was born. He, yeah, Izmir was the city where he was born. Um, but he was, he in general traveled a lot. He was in Israel for a period of time, the Ottoman Empire, right? The Ottoman Empire. The Jews in Poland bought into this false Messiah, and this guy was charading as the future Messiah, and the Messiah is about to come, and he's about to save all the Jews. And the Jews of Poland were so excited at the prospect that finally, after this terrible suffering, God is sending us our Messiah. We're going to go to Israel and all the suffering is going to be over. To make a long story short, right now is not the time to talk about Shabbat Tzvi. He took really most Jews alive on the ride that he is a Messiah and that the Messiah is about to come, is imminent. Uh, but then... <laughs> The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire arrested him and uh, told him that he's going to kill him unless he converts. That was the popular ultimatum to give to a Jew. And Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam. And the moment that happens, reality sinks into the Jews and they realize that this guy was one big fraud. But the high of the belief, there was literally a hysteria that we, the Messiah is about to come. And then for that hope to just be shattered, it was a double punch in the gut for the Jewish community. So, you know, so the community in Poland is already beaten and battered. And now they had this hope, but it was really a false hope. They were even more despondent. It was horrible. And there's a lot more to throw into the pile that just brings out how bad the situation was for the majority of Jews living in Europe. Jews were very poor. And one of the reasons why Jews were very poor was because after the pogrom, all the Jews moved to the larger cities. You know, in Poland, there were hundreds of Jewish um, communities, shtetls. Most of them were small communities. You know, small communities means maybe 200 Jews, 300 Jews. 300 Jews is a pretty big community when everybody is 100% engaged. So there, you know, you can have 250 Jews, but it was a very active community, but it was quite small. So if you live in a community of 250 Jews and maybe 500 people total, um, let's say there's only 20 survivors from the pogroms, maybe only 10 survivors. So nobody, you know, so most Jews ended up moving to the larger cities like Warsaw and, uh, and, and Krakow and a few others. Oznan, there was a few of the larger communities in Poland. Jews moved there. But because of all that movement, Jews did not have jobs. And usually Jews were craftsmen. You know, they were a shoemaker and they were a silversmith, a blacksmith. And, you know, they had their little odd jobs. 
And they were the only shoemaker in, uh, in their little village. But when you go to Warsaw, how many shoemakers could Warsaw use? You know, you see, you had 100 Jews who knew who were shoemakers, but Warsaw didn't need any more shoemakers. In short, Jews were out of, out of jobs and Jews were very poor. And we all know that when there's financial stress, it only made the matter worse. And I'll just say one more, just one more detail, just to bring out how horrible the situation was. There was a very big divide back then within the Jewish community. You were either a very learned Jew or, or you were an extremely simple and illiterate Jew. The whole idea that we appreciate today that you could hop on a Zoom and you could study books of mysticism, this is such a modern day blessing. Jews used to not have these opportunities. Jews, generally speaking, you were either fortunate enough, right? You were from that 1% who got to get educated and you went to a yeshiva and you were part of this elite group of scholarly Jews, or you were really, for lack of a better term, pretty stupid. You were very simple. You didn't even know how to read. Now, I'm not putting down these Jews, God forbid, the opposite. These simple Jews were the majority. They were beautiful Jews. They were sincere as, sincer as sincerity could get. They loved God. They were devoted to Judaism, but it was with an absolute sincerity. There was no scholarship there. But part of Jewish culture then, which was really horrible, was the elite scholars looked down at the simple Jews. And they really looked down at them with disdain. There was a very big cultural, they really put them down. And it was just part of the Jewish culture. It was horrible, but that was part of Jewish life. Um, the scholars would tell the simple Jews about how they are an embarrassment to Judaism because they don't know anything and they're a bunch of illiterates and God is embarrassed of them and that they're going to go to hell. And, and this became a kind of cultural phenomenon that the majority, the 99% of simple Jews didn't feel inspired. Most Jews did not live inspired lives. Put all of these ingredients together and you had a royal mess. The second half of the 17th century of Jewish history was the darkest point of, ex of the exile of the Jewish people. The Jews are in exile for 2000 years from, uh, at this point, almost 2000 years. The lowest point is really the last 50 years of the 17th century, of the 1600s. We look back at that point of Jewish history and we describe it as when the Jewish people were in a, a state of faint. Like they were in a faint, they were in a coma. When somebody faints, they are technically still alive, but practically speaking, there's nothing alive about them. They're in a faint, they're in a coma. And that was what was going on then for those few decades. Um, technically there were Jews and there were practicing Jews. Jews were religious and Jews were celebrating Shabbat and celebrating the holidays and going to synagogue and performing the mitzvot, but there, there was no spirit of life. The Jews were so depressed. Judaism was cold and, and lonely, and there was a very strong sense of distance from God, of isolation, and that was Jewish life. It was a horrible time, and it was unsustainable. It was unsustainable. 
you know, there's no way Judaism could survive under such harsh conditions. And onto this scene arrives and is born a wondrous soul, the soul of Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov means the master of the holy name. He was an exceptional soul. Already from the moment he was born, everybody knew just by looking at him that this is a saintly soul. Um, at the age of, he was just a few months old and he already spoke fluently and spoke, which is, he, he spoke fluently and walked, which is biologically impossible. It's an impossibility. There's no way to, he was a wonder child. He was a, he, he wasn't a normal, uh, Jewish history tells us that his parents, his father was 100 years old, his mother was 90 years old. I'm saying this, he was not born in a natural environment. He, he, was, he was not a, a, a regular child. He was a holy soul. And they saw that from, from, the, very, uh, from the very beginning. The Baal Shem Tov was God's gift to the Jewish people, to revive the Jewish people. And he was given the gift of revealing a new element within Judaism called Hasidus. And he created the Hasidic movement, right? That's what we call colloquially, a movement. But it was really revealing a hidden dimension in Judaism. There were great rabbis throughout the ages and God gave them the gift. They were great souls and they were God's gift to earth. To, to, to mankind, to the Jewish people, to reveal a new element within Judaism. You have Maimonides, you have Rashi. Uh, you have many great people. And the Baal Shem Tov revealed Hasidus. What is Hasidus? So, Hasidus, it's hard to define. Hasidus is a power, a spiritual power. It's a power which is built on ideas that come from the deepest parts of Torah, what you would call Kabbalah. Very deep mystical ideas that really get to the core of Jewish thought, of Jewish spirituality. It was a force of spirituality. That's what Hasidus is. Deep ideas. And what the Baal Shem Tov did was he created a new model of how to think as Jews. He created a movement and the movement really, it caught like wildfire. The movement actually began only in the early 1700s when the Baal Shem Tov was 36 years old. He taught the Jews a new way to think, a new way to feel. He spoke to the Jewish people about the purity and preciousness of a Jewish soul, that every single Jewish soul is a part of God. There's a piece of God in every single Jew, that God is very near to every single Jew. God is not distant. He spoke about the need for joy, serve God with joy. He spoke about the idea that scholarship is not what matters. It's sincerity that matters. God wants the heart. Being smart is not a virtue in Judaism. Being sincere, serving God with your heart, serving God with joy. He spoke about the idea that we are not, Judaism is not a religion about suffering. 
and that we shouldn't look to suffer. We shouldn't look to pain our body. We shouldn't look to shun our physical experiences. The opposite, we're here to elevate all of our life. And he dedicated his life to traveling throughout Europe, going to Jewish communities, and literally simply by the power of his personality, being a spiritual leader, being a saint, being a tzaddik, as we say in Hebrew, he had the fire of Hasidus, and wherever he went, everybody felt the warmth and uplifted everybody. And that was the turning point of the, the revival of the Jewish people. And not just a revival, but a revival that was beyond where they were before, because now they had this new energy of Hasidus. But the Baal Shem Tov didn't teach the ideas of Hasidus to the common folk. He didn't teach them the philosophical, the intellectual basis of what he was preaching. He shared an energy with them. That's literally what, what it was. He had a fire, and anybody who met him felt that fire. But the teachings, the ideas of Hasidus, the deep spiritual ideas, he didn't teach it to the common folk. He taught it to his students, and the Baal Shem Tov hand-selected his students, only great scholars and mystics and sensitive souls were able to study under the Baal Shem Tov. And they learned, these special uh, privileged students, they studied the teachings, the doctrine of Hasidus. But the regular common folk, the regular Jew, only was able to feel the energy, but they weren't able to internalize and study it. And the Baal Shem Tov said that that's, that wasn't within his mission. His mission was to bring Hasidus into the world, but he wasn't capable to be the one to create a model for every single Jew, even simple Jews, to be able to relate to it. The Baal Shem Tov passed away. His successor was his student, his number one student, whose name was Rabbi Dovber, which is more, which is better known as the Magid of Mezrich. And before the Baal Shem Tov passed away, the Baal Shem Tov told his future successor, the Magid of Mezrich, about the future of the Hasidic movement and what his responsibilities are as the future leader of the Hasidic movement. And he told Rabbi Dovber, the Mizritcher Magid, that there is a great soul who is destined to be the leader after you. His name is Shneir Zalman, Rabbi Shneir Zalman. And you have to realize at this point, Rabbi Shneir Zalman was maybe a child, and the Baal Shem Tov was already speaking about him in the future. <laughs> he wasn't a child, maybe he was barely a teen. The Baal Shem Tov said that this soul is a very unique soul. And this soul was the one chosen by heaven to bring the Hasidic movement to the next step. And Rabbi Schneir Zalman's job is to take the ideas of Hasidus and package them in a model that every single Jew, even a Jew which is not a Kabbalist and even a Jew which is not 
a very sensitive spiritual soul, and even a Jew who is not very learned can approach and study the ideas of Hasidus and internalize them, which was a tremendous leap to take the deepest spiritual ideas of Judaism and create a model that every single Jew can understand. And the Baal Shem Tov spoke to his successor that in a few years, this man will come by your door and he's going to want to join, join, uh, join your movement. He's going to want to be your student. And you have to share with him that this is his life's destiny to create a model, to bring the teachings and the light of Hasidus in a way that it could be internalized by other Jews. And indeed, that's what the Baal Shem Tov, that's what, the, uh, that's what Rabbi Schneer Zalman did. Rabbi Schneer Zalman was a young man of 18 or 19 years old when he was looking for a spiritual mentor, a guide. He was a very gifted young man. He was a brilliant young man. And he heard about Rabbi Dovber, the leader of the uh, Hasidic movement, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. So he traveled to him. And he asked if he could be a student. He was looking for a mentor. He was looking for a spiritual guide who could challenge him and bring out his potential in, uh, in living a, a spiritual life, a dedicated life to, to God and to Judaism. And, uh, and Rabbi Dovber, the Magad of Mezrich, welcomes him in and teaches him and uh, creates, you know, he... Uh, he develops the next leader of the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, who authors the Tanya, right? Which we have his picture right over here. And Rabbi Schneer Zalman's magnum opus, his real book, which he wrote, is the Tanya. What is the Tanya? The Tanya was a book that was never, not, no book was ever written like this in the past. And there was never any book that ever matched the power of the Tanya. The Tanya took the deepest ideas of Judaism, Ideas that the common Jew really had no access to for all of Jewish history. And he explained them, developed them into an intelligible philosophy, an intelligible model that one could study from. And even a simple Jew can open up this book and study from it and learn the deepest ideas of Judaism in a practical and meaningful model. And uh, this was an absolute breakthrough in the way Jews study Torah. Because ideas from Kabbalah, ideas from Jewish mysticism, were really off limits to the average Jew. Not only were they off limits, meaning they weren't off limits because nobody was telling them to you. They were off limits because it was impossible to understand the books. <laughs> you know, you could go into a bookstore into a Jewish bookstore and buy ancient books of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. You could do that. No one's stopping you. <laughs> and they're even translated in English. It's, it's, these are not secretive teachings because somebody is not letting you buy the books. They're secretive because when you open the books, you have no clue what's flying. <laughs> Instead, when you open up a book, an authentic book of Kabbalah, by the way, there's a lot of fraud Kabbalah out there. I don't know what, you know, if you go on Amazon and look for books of Kabbalah, let me just tell you the rule. If you buy a book of Kabbalah and you can understand it, it's not Kabbalah. 
<laughs> all right? That's probably, that's uh, the rule of thumb. If you don't understand it, oh, then it's maybe something authentic. I'm just telling you, I'm a rabbi and uh, I'm not a great scholar, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've done my fair share of Jewish study and I, I, I continue to study. Uh, it's impossible for me. I cannot open up the book of the Zohar, which is the classic ancient book of Jewish mysticism, which is 2,000 years old, goes back to the great sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. If I open, I cannot understand it. It's written in very poetic form. It's not organized. Um, it's written very cryptic. Everything's code words. There's no way to understand it. The Tanya said the Jews need, they need it. The Jews are in such bad shape. Jews need the deepest ideas of Judaism to revive them, to revive their souls, to give them that spiritual boost. And the Tanya was the first ever model and the only model that was ever created. It was, it was, it was a development in the story of the development of the Torah, a model that took the deepest ideas in Judaism and created them in a way that every single Jew can study them and access them and live a life which is motivated and inspired by these higher ideas. And that's what the book of Tanya is. We just spent 40 minutes talking about what the Tanya is. But uh, we have to understand the power, the potency of what this book is, the context of what it was to do, and the reason why it became an absolute classic. Not just it's a classic, but really in the modern age, um, to be an inspired Jew, there's really no real way to do it without the Tanya. And as we study the Tanya, you'll, uh, you'll, I think you'll understand that yourself. You won't, have to, you won't have to take my word for it. So the Tanya was, was uh, ultimately printed in the year 1796. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneur Zaman, spent 20 years painstakingly authoring every single line, even every word. He put tremendous care into the precision of, this, of the book. Um, 1796, it goes to print. And I'll actually just show you over here because it's they, in the back of the book, they kept record of every single print of the book of Tanya. So just listen to this. Here's something interesting. Here's the original. They have the list of prints. All right. Now, in, it was first printed in the year 1796. The first year, the first year, am I in the right place? I think so. In the first, yeah, in the first year, they print 15,000 volumes. In 1796, 15,000 volumes are printed. A year later, sorry, 1796, 1796, 15,000 volumes are printed. 1797, an additional 5,000 volumes are printed. 1798, uh, 20,000 volumes are printed. So just in the first three years, 40,000 volumes are being printed. And remember, this is not in the age where printing books is cheap and buying books is cheap. And in general, people did not really have own a lot of books. But Tani became an absolute classic uh, throughout, uh, throughout European Jewry and it spread beyond. Um, and it's, it's referred to as the Bible of Hasidus, the Bible of Hasidic thought. Um, so Hasidus... Is not, a, is not just a movement. It's not a group of people who dress a certain way, you know, who, uh, who have unique customs. Hasidus really is 
at the essence of what Hasidus is, it is a philosophy. And that philosophy, these ideas, spiritual ideas, or not even ideas, but spiritual energy, is conveyed to us in an accessible way in the book of Tanya. This is our bridge. So just to give you the lingo, I just want you to understand a little bit the lingo over here. So there's Hasidus, which is the idea that the Baal Shem Tov revealed the energy, spiritual energy, which could revive the Jewish people. And the Alter Rebbe created the model of what's called Hasidus Chabad. All right, ever heard of Chabad? So what's Chabad? It's an outreach organization. No, that's not what Chabad is. Chabad is, a, is the model where one can internalize and study the teachings of Hasidus and live a life that is motivated, that streams from the Hasidus that one can live with in their heart by studying the teachings of Hasidus. And uh, that's actually gonna be what you'll see, meaning whatever you know of Chabad, and I, I know I'm biased, but Chabad is a beautiful organization and it has brought such a good energy to the Jewish people. Uh, through the Rebbe's of Chabad. But everything that Chabad is and stands for flows from Tanya. And you'll see that. Meaning the, the action side or the activist side of Chabad is merely the expression of the ideas of Chabad. And the ideas of Chabad is the, the spiritual ideas of Hasidus, the deepest ideas of Torah. And with that, we have 15 minutes left. I want to do some reading with you. We're not going to start reading yet chapter one. We still have a little bit of a way to go until we can read chapter one of Tanya. We're going to read two things first. One we'll read today. Next week, we will read the next part. The classical way to study Tanya is you got to begin with the title page. And if you take a look at your printouts, if you have it printed out or if you have it online on your computer, it's on page three of your handout. And this is the title page, right? It's not even, uh, it's not even the introduction. It's not even the foreword. It's the title page. Who studies title pages? <laughs> but in the Tanya, the title page, I'll just show you this, what the title page looks like in the original book. Um, the title page was written by the Alter Rebbe. And it actually, he conveys to us the mission statement. The entire Tanya is built upon this page. So it's very important to read this page and study this page uh, because this helps us understand what we're doing, what we're not doing. So let's read, here we go. The author's title page, and this is the book's mission statement. Now, if you take a look, first of all, I included the Hebrew because I think uh, there's a tremendous power in the original Hebrew. And uh, okay, so Nancy, if you take a look at your email, in your email, uh, there should be an attachment with the handout. All right. And actually, if you give me one quick moment, I can actually share it with you. I could share it here on Zoom. Give me one moment. This should be very quick. Yep. All right. There you go. It's sending. All right. So I believe, um, yeah, no problem, Nancy. No worries. So I just sent the, the file. All right. I think that worked. Um, so I included the Hebrew. We're not going to be reading from the Hebrew, but I just wanted to be there because respect to the original and no translation will ever do justice to, the, uh, to all that's contained in the original language. 
And if you take a look at the English, this is not a, this is not just a literal translation. The bold lettering is the literal translation and to help, uh, to help it, to help make text read and flow a little bit smoother, um, I added in some, uh, some additional words to help us understand some additional commentary and that's in the lighter font, in the lighter print. So here we go, let's read. A book entitled An Anthology of Teachings, a compilation. In Hebrew, that's Lekute Amorim, part one. So the author of it introduces himself <laughs> as uh, this is not a new book. This is not creative stuff. I'm just a collector. I'm just a collector of old ideas which is a very humble thing for the author of it to say, right? To begin on such a humble note, I'm just, I'm just a compiler, you know? This is not my own creative novel ideas. On the one hand, the author of it is right. And the author of it actually insists on us knowing this. Everything in the Tanya is authentic traditional Judaism. This is not a new version of Judaism. Um, every single idea is rooted and it could be sourced in the old classical text of Judaism. At the same time, the Alter Rebbe presents old ideas in such a brand new, fresh way that really it's a crime to say these are old ideas. It's so new, it's so fresh. You know, I'll give you an example. Think about a great chef who makes uh, an absolute wonderful dish. A celebrated chef, a world celebrated chef. And the chef says, nah, I don't get any credit. All the ingredients come from Costco. Costco gets all the credit. <laughs> is she wrong or is he wrong? No, technically, yeah, it's true. All the ingredients come from Costco. But uh, come on, you know, who are you fooling? <laughs> you took all these ingredients and made something that nobody else can make. So the author of it does that. He takes Judaism. And sometimes it's difficult to crack the code, to crack the nut and get to the essence of Judaism just by studying the Talmud and the Medrash. And the author of it just helps us really string these ideas together and see the depth of these ideas. So it's an anthology of teachings. And this is part one. There's four parts to Tanya. There's four parts to Tanya. Generally speaking, when you hear somebody talking about the Tanya, they are speaking about part one. But there really are additional sections to Tanya which are independent works, which may be God willing. And uh, with God's help, when we conclude part one of Tanya, <laughs> and if we're not too old yet, we could uh, make our way onto part two and part three and part four, with God's help. Let's continue reading. Called by the name. So part one is titled, it has the name, The Book of the In-Betweeners. Sefer Shel Benonim. It's quite remarkable. The author of it says, I'm writing this book for the average guy. One of, one of the reasons one of the ways where you see that the Tanya is so unique is just how practical it is, how it understands its audience. It doesn't present ideas about spiritual growth, you know, from an ivory tower. The Alter Rebbe, despite being such a holy man on his own, really understood the soul and the struggles of the soul of the average Jew just like all of us. Maybe here in this uh, wonderful Zoom room, maybe some of you are tzaddikim, are saints, are holy people. I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to claim that all of us are simple. I can say for myself, right? I'm from the, from the 
regular Jews, average Jews. You know, regular average people, the regular average Jew, the in-betweeners, you know, uh, we're not saints. We are not what's called in Hebrew tzaddikim, righteous people. We're not either absolute evil people. <laughs> we're somewhere between. We have a lot of goodness in us. We also have some demons inside of us, right? We also have some nastiness inside of us. And we struggle through life. We struggle to be the best people we could be. We struggle to make the right choices. And we sometimes mess up. And the author says, I'm writing this book for you. It's a very empowering idea. We're going to see this through the book. The author says, I'm not writing this book with a false sense of excellence or with a false sense of perfection. I'm writing this for the Jew who's not perfect. But I'll, I'll give you the spiritual path to lead the life of what's known in Hebrew as a benini. And by the way, that's going to be a very key word, a benini. Abandoning means you are not a tzaddik, which means you're not a saint. You're not either a Russia. You're not either wicked. You're not a wicked person. You're, you're a regular person and you struggle. And within that struggle, we need to create and understand who we are. We need to get in touch with our own struggles. We, know that we need to get in touch with our strengths and learn what is the perfection that we could expect from ourselves. So that's the name of the book. The book's name is the book for the average Jew for the in-betweeners. Let's continue. Anthologized, collected from various published texts and from the unpublished wisdom of various teachers of exceptional holiness whose souls are in heaven. So the author says, I collected all the ideas in this book from the classical Jewish books, as well as the great teachers, the Alter Rebbe's teacher, Rabbi Dovber, and the founder of the movement, the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. Okay, here's the important paragraph of this text. This book is based on the verse. It's a, it's a verse in Deuteronomy. For these commandments, which I am commanding you this day, is not beyond you, nor is it far away. Rather, the thing, the thing, whatever the thing is, the thing is very much within reach to you, in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. What's this verse? This verse is in the Torah. Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the five books of Moses. And Deuteronomy is really uh, the final speech that Moses tells the Jewish people. Moses tells the Jewish people, I can sense that my time is up. I'm going to be passing on soon. And I want to share with you my last words. This is the original leader of the Jewish people. And it's a wonderful, beautiful pep talk. He inspires the Jewish people as he is about to leave his flock. Moses is about to take off. And one of the final things that Moses tells the Jewish people is, all these commandments that I commanded you, they are not beyond you. It's not far away. Judaism is not a far-fetched program. It's not an impossible program. And Moses says, rather the thing, Judaism, serving God, living a life as a Jew, is very much within, with, is very much within reach. And he says, in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. 
Judaism is practical. That's what Moses says. It's within reach. It's near to you. And the author of it continues. Let's read inside to clarify. This book is here to clarify. Well, how authentic worship is very much within reach. I'm here to explain what Moses was saying. Moses says Judaism is near to you. And the author of it says, I don't understand. <laughs> Let's think about this. Do you agree with Moses' statement? Judaism is near to you? What do you say? <laughs> I'll tell you. On the one hand, Judaism never demands you to do something that's crazy. You know, Judaism never tells you jump off a roof. Which, by the way, that's actually doable. Judaism never says jump onto your roof. That's impossible, right? Meaning, practically speaking, yeah, Judaism is a practical program. You know, unless you're, you're, you're you know, if you're lazy or not interested, then okay, you know, maybe you, you choose not to do certain parts of Judaism. But essentially, yeah, Judaism happens to be, a, a, it is practical in essence. But I think the question of the, of the spiritual, of the spiritually seeking Jew is, let's think about a Jew. Let's think about a Jew who's living in the times of the author of And he's a religious Jew, a very deeply religious Jew. And he's committed to Judaism. He does all of Judaism. He follows all the letter of the law and goes beyond the letter of the law. Let's think about this individual. And he still feels he's lacking something. Maybe he feels he's lacking meaning. I'm doing Judaism and I feel committed to Judaism, but sometimes I don't feel a deep meaning, a meaningful connection to Judaism, a meaningful connection to God, right? Maybe I do Judaism, but am I happy about doing it? Am I motivated to do it? Let's look at the verse. Moses tells the Jews, it's very much within reach. And Moses says, in your heart. Living a life of Judaism which is real in your heart. Is that really easy? Is that really within reach? There's a lot of Judaism that demands from us not just to do stuff, but to feel things. There's a mitzvah to love every single Jew. Well, what if I don't love every Jew? <laughs> I love a lot of Jews, but maybe I also hate some Jews. What should I do about it? There's a mitzvah to love God. Love God. We humans are very good at loving pizza. <laughs> loving God? I don't know how to love God. How do you love God? Is that, is, is that accessible? Is that within reach? And in general, this a meaningful, emotional attachment to Judaism. That is really the question of a spiritually seeking Jew. And the author says, that's what this book is here to come and help explain to all of us. A path to Jewish life not just how to do Jewish things, but how to be Jewish through and through. How to feel the power of what it means to be a Jew. How to live and be in touch with our soul, with the power of our soul. That's what this book is all about. To give a Jew a meaningful, accessible way of internalizing the Judaism and, and leading a spiritual life with that fire, with that energy. It's quite a tall order. <laughs> all right? Let's read the next line. The author ever says, in a long but short way. Long but short way. I'll tell it to you, but in a long but short way. What does that mean? Well, we got a footnote. The footnote is Talmud, Ayurvin, page 53b. Okay, I'll share with you the Talmud. The Talmud says a story about a sage. 
The sage's name, I believe, was Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Joshua. Rabbi Joshua was a brilliant scholar and a shrewd man. And he says in the Talmud, he says, nobody ever got the better of me. <laughs> nobody ever outsmarted me besides three people in my whole life. Those three people were a boy, a girl, and a woman. That's what he says. And he shares the stories of when he was uh, outsmarted each time. What's the story of the boy? Rabbi Yehoshua was traveling to Jerusalem. He's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He sees Jerusalem. He's on the mountains overlooking the city of Jerusalem, but he's not sure how to get into the city. He sees a boy, a little boy. So he asked the boy, little boy, how do I get into Jerusalem? So the little boy in typical, right? And uh, what's it called? Being a smart aleck, right? Like we say in Yiddish, being a little smart aleck, the little boy tells Rabbi Joshua, Do, would you like to hear about the short, long way or the long, short way? <laughs> what type of question? You want the short, long way or the long, short way? The rabbi says, I don't know, just give me the short, long way. All right, you want the short, long way. So the little boy tells Rabbi Joshua, the short, long way, take this path, or this is the path that leads you to Jerusalem. And uh, the path is a very straightforward path. And Rabbi Joshua sees, you know, it's a, it's a very short path. It's straightforward. It leads into Jerusalem, but it is it is all types of obstacles. It was basically, it was practically impossible to actually go on this path and enter the city of Jerusalem. So Rabbi Joshua gives up and goes back to the boy and says, little boy, why did you tell me to go on this path? You told me it was short. So the boy says, I also told you it was long. Short, long. So Rabbi Joshua says, okay, what's the long, short way? So the boy gives Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Joshua, different directions. And this path was long. It was long in distance. It was windy. It took longer to travel. But at the end, it was a clear, open path that ultimately led Rabbi Yehoshua successfully into the city. That's where a long but short way comes from. But, but what does that mean? Long but short way. You see, when the Talmud tells us the story, of Rabbi Yehoshua and the city of Jerusalem, nothing in the Talmud is trivial. The Talmud is actually teaching us a very deep message. Entering Jerusalem, there's also a spiritual Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the heart of the Jewish people. And we all have a Jerusalem within our own heart. The Jewish soul is our little Jerusalem. We all have a Jerusalem. And every Jew is looking to get into Jerusalem. Every single Jew is looking to how can I connect? How can I open the key, open the lock of my little Jerusalem in my soul? And there's two ways to get into your soul. One is a short, long way. One is a long, short way. There's one way which is pretty much short, but at the end of the day, ultimately it is long. It's very difficult to successfully make, you, make it into your heart. Then there's a long way. It takes a lot longer, but it's short. There's a guarantee for success. So what does this mean? And we're already two minutes over time, so let's keep this brief. How could we live an inspired life? So we all know there's very cheap ways to be inspired. <laughs> cheap meaning not that it's cheap in money, but cheap in time, cheap in effort. How do we, how do we get inspired? 
you go to a lecture. And if the lecturer knows what they're doing and knows the art of lecturing, then you could be inspired. And you could leave after an hour of lecture and say, wow, I was just inspired. Maybe it's a high holiday service and the sermon and the cantor is moving and you are inspired. Maybe you went to Israel and you're standing by the Kotel, by the Western Wall, and you feel the power of the holiness of Jerusalem and you feel inspired. But dear friends, let's all be honest. What happens a week later? What happens two weeks later? That all that inspiration was easy come and easy go. We got inspired. It was short. It was pretty easy. But ultimately, it's long. The path seems short, but we end up at too many failed attempts to truly unlock the door to our souls and truly live a life motivated by, this, by, the, by the power of our souls. That's one model. There's a cheap model, cheap model for inspiration. And we all know that model quite well. And we all know <laughs> the downsides of that model and that, that the model doesn't always work too well. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta do it pretty often to keep it up, right? <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta always keep up the inspiration. Inspiration dies very quickly. I'm not gonna say the joke now, but Beth and Sheldon, you know my joke, right? Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur, business is business. I'll tell you the joke soon, if anybody wants to stay for the joke. Then there's another way. The author of it says, this is not going to be a cheap book. If you're looking for cheap tricks and cheap shots, how to live an inspired life, you came to the wrong book. This book is long, but short. I'm going to give you the real rigorous path to living a life, to getting access to your soul, living a life with meaning and with, with spiritually motivated. It's not going to happen by cheap inspiration. It's going to happen by studying using our mind to internalize ideas and try to motivate our heart to feel those ideas, to own those, own the inspiration. When you are inspired, you are like sitting next to a fire. There's a fire outside of you. And if you get close enough to the fire, you feel the warmth. But when the fire is out or when you leave the fire, you're cold again. The author of it says, I am here to give you the fire that you should own that fire. You, don't, you never need to go to the fire. It will be within you. That's the goal of the Tanya. But it takes a lot longer. It's the long way. But the author says, ultimately, it's going to be short. It works. It's successful. It's the long, short way you will be able to enter your own Jerusalem. And one more line over here. Last line. With the help of God, may he be blessed. Anytime we study, and anytime we want to endeavor on a spiritual journey, we can only do it with God's help. So the author of is giving us God's blessing that we should be successful in studying the Tanya, in understanding the Tanya, and feeling the meaningfulness of the teachings of Tanya. Yeah, man. In five minutes, we'll be done. All right. And with that, if any of you want to stay, I can tell you the joke. All right. But with that, we conclude today's class. I want to thank you all for joining all of us on this journey. It's wonderful to have you with us. I'm so excited to be studying Tanya with all of you. And I just want to share with you, okay, I know that the next two weeks are a little bit difficult weeks. You know, this was a bad time to launch a new series. You know, right before the holiday season, people are traveling, people are coming, people have more people in the house. Let me know if any of you, if, if, if all of you could either send me a text or an email, if you are available next week's class, which is the 22nd, and the week following, the 29th. 
if enough people are going to be out of town or unable to join, maybe we'll skip a week. I didn't want to push off the series until after New Year's. You know, a good thing. Got to get it started. But, um, but you know, if, if, if enough, if, you know, if there's a, a considerable amount of, of you which are not available, maybe we'll push off the class. Here's a joke. You ready for the joke? It's a great joke because good jokes are not jokes which just make you laugh. Good jokes are the jokes that bring out a truth that we can all, we can all relate to. It's a shtetl joke, a Jewish old, that was a little shtetl. There was a Jew, his name was Moshe. His name was Moshe the Ganev, Moshe the thief. <laughs> he was called Moshe the thief because his first name was Moshe and because his occupation was a thief. <laughs> he stole for a, as a livelihood. Nobody knew, you know. <laughs> Watch your packets when you're around Moshe the thief. One Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is over. After the fast is over, the rabbi of the little village is in his office. There's a knock on the door and Moshe the Ganev walks in, Moshe the thief. And Moshe the thief tells the rabbi, Rabbi, you spoke about the need to repent on Yom Kippur. I was so inspired and so moved. I decide I'm going to repent. And he lifts up a sack filled with stuff. He says, he tells the rabbi, Rabbi, this is all the stuff I stole in the past year. I want to repent. Please, I'm giving this to you. Please give it all out back to the original owners. I'm making amends. And the rabbi himself is so moved by this act of repentance. He stands up and gives Moshe a hug and says, Moshe, you're such an inspiration that you are turning a new page in your life. I'm so proud of you. And the rabbi says, I'm going to go tonight. I'm not going to push it off. And I'm going to, I'm going to uh, return all the uh, stolen objects. And the rabbi goes out and spends two hours going from door to door making sure every single home gets their stolen objects back. The rabbi is done. It's late at night and the rabbi lifts up his sleeve to look at his watch and see what time it is. And oh, his watch is gone. His watch is gone. Well, what? Like, where's my watch? He says, one second. Moshe, the Ganev, was just in my office. He just told me he's repenting. But... So the rabbi reluctantly knocks on Moshe's door late at night. Moshe answers the door and the rabbi says, Moshe, I, I truly hate doing this. You just told me that you are repenting, but it happens to be that after you left my office, I'm missing my watch. Is there, is there any chance you maybe took it? And Moshe, Moshe looks down and is embarrassed. You have to be sure. And Moshe and Moshe bashfully says, yes, Rabbi, I took it. And the rabbi says, she has to go to mommy. So the rabbi, so the rabbi tells Moshe, Moshe, what happened? You were just in my office. You were just telling me that you repented. What, what's going on? So Moshe, the God of says, listen, rabbi, Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. Business is business. That's the story, my dear friends, but we all know that story, right? We all have our moments of inspiration and the next day, business is business. So the Tanya is not that. Okay, we got a question over here. Hi, Rabbi, is Tanya followed by all Hasidic groups or just Chabad? Uh, that's a great question. The Tanya is studied by all Hasidic groups. It is an absolute classic throughout the Hasidic world. Now, without getting too deeply into all the history, there are many different Hasidic groups, possibly you've heard about this, called Hasidic sects. Um, Chabad, 
is one Hasidic sect, one Hasidic group. The Hasidic movement um, branched off into different streams, but Chabad is the stream which uh, developed the philosophy, the intellectual ideas of Hasidus. So in fact, even in other Hasidic groups, the only way to truly study the teachings of Hasidus is through studying the teachings of Chabad. Um, because Chabad, Chabad literally means intellect. We'll talk about that. Chabad literally means Chochma Bina Das. It refers to the English, to, to, the, uh, to the intellectual faculties. Because that's what Chabad is all about. Taking the deep ideas and giving us a pathway through our mind to um, be, get in touch with these ideas. Okay, Julie, very good question. Is the Tanya translated into English? Yes, it is. Here's one volume. This is called the Practical Tanya. You could buy it on Amazon. And this is, um, this is one version of an English translation. There's also this book, which is like the classical translation. You know, there's no commentary here, just a literal translation where you have, I'll just show you an example. Let's open up a page. You have the Hebrew, the original Hebrew on one side and the English on the other side. And then you have, you could buy a five volume set in English, which is called Lessons in Tanya five volume set, which is with translation and commentary. Practically speaking, I'd probably tell you that the most accessible English translation is this book, The Practical Tanya. And uh, by the way, friends, feel free to uh, spoil it. <laughs> and I truly mean that. You could buy the book and read ahead and uh, it's not a problem. Actually, I'd very much encourage you to go ahead and buy yourself a book of Tanya so they could study it. And for the classes, I'll make for you this handout so that we have just something which we're all working off of. Uh, which works for the uh, for what we want in this class, but uh, absolutely, I would I would definitely encourage you to buy a book of Tanya. Next week we will study the author's introduction, not chapter one yet, where the author really describes what went into um, writing the Tanya, the decision to write the Tanya, and what what were the goals and how we should approach the study of Tanya. And then after we conclude that, we'll start with chapter one. We'll really start digging into the ideas of the Tanya. We'll begin the journey into Tanya. I want to thank you all for joining. This is really exciting. And I, I'm so happy that all of you are joining. And if any of you have any questions, feel free to email me or call me. And look forward to continuing the conversation.